Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we get an update on the political developments in Algeria after the official resignation of the President Abdelaziz Bouteflika. We speak again with Dr. Thomas Sayre of UC Santa Cruz. Later in the program, we hear from the Syrian illustrator Dima Neshawi. We talk about the art scene, especially in exile, and the importance of creative work in preserving a nation's collective memory. Stay with us. Algeria has been in happy turmoil for the past seven weeks with millions of people in the streets reclaiming their rights to genuine representation from a tired and corrupt old regime. A president for 20 years, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, has not only accepted to peacefully resign, but he has even apologized to the Algerian people. The Algerian state has now embarked upon a three-month transition in preparation for the presidential election, formally conceding one of the protesters' main demands. And yet, the people are still in the streets, both celebrating their hard-won victories, while at the same time keeping up with the pressure on a regime determined to maintain itself under any guise possible. To get a better sense of the dramatic political changes that are taking place in Algeria, Khalil spoke with UC Santa Cruz professor Dr. Thomas Serre. They talk about the ongoing street protests and the possible political formations in the near future. Thomas, since we spoke three weeks ago, much has happened in Algeria. A number of crucial figures peeled off of Bouteflika, including the chief of staff of the army. And then finally, two days ago, the president officially resigned as of April 28th, if I'm not mistaken, bringing Mm -hmm. his 20-year rule to an end, along with the promise of presidential elections after a three-month transition period. A lot has happened, and yet the people of Algeria are still in the streets. Mm -hmm. Why, after this ostensible victory, why are the people still in the streets as if nothing had happened? Well, things have happened, for sure. And I think that people in the streets are acknowledging that they actually managed to defeat Bouteflika. So this is a victory, as you have said. It's clearly a major victory, but it's a victory. It's one battle and a revolution is also, in a way, long-term offensive against the political order. It's a real war that they are trying to win right now. And this is the first major victory, maybe not the first one, actually, because the first major victory was the simple fact of being massively in the streets to demonstrate the fact that the regime is not the only alternative in Algeria, that there is a people that is very much alive. No, Bouteflika resigned, and that's a major victory again. People will be in the streets tomorrow, Friday, because they want much more. They want the total defeat of the system, of the Nizam, of the regime, and it implies that a lot of people have to go after Bouteflika. As per the Algerian constitution, the three-month transition period leading to the presidential election is to be conducted by an old regime hand and the head of the Senate, who's been there in this position for the past 17 years, by the name of Abdelkader bin Saleh. Tell us who he is, and can he be really trusted, or is this a case of putting a fox in charge of the chicken coop? That's a, a pretty good way to put it. 
the question of trust at this point is, I feel, in a way, irrelevant because these members of the old ruling elite are, in essence, completely discredited. So there is no trust. The people cannot trust somebody like Ben Salah. They cannot trust somebody like Bedoui, the prime minister, or they cannot trust somebody like uh, Tayeb Belahiz, the head of the Constitutional Council. All of these figures of the old, the, the ancient regime, are, in a sense, compromised. And uh, somebody like Ben Salah, in particular, he has been fierce supporter of Bouteflika until the end, when the army decided to uh, follow its own path and to protect its own vested interest. Ben Salah was still here. When the RND, his political party, the National Democratic Rally, bailed out and started to express its desolidarization, Ben Salah was still here. So he's somebody who has been part of Bouteflika's family for a very long time. He's definitely a member of the ancient regime, and there is no trust. There is no reason for the Algerian people to think that this man will, at any moment, meet their demands and protect their interests. That's very clear. So for the next three months, the military seems to be in charge right behind Ben Saleh. How do you see the role of the military? You know, here in America, they say the military when they mean the army. In Algeria, mm. we say the army, the same thing. How do you see the role of the military when it really in the past had such a fraught and, and difficult and painful mm. checkered past, shall we say? How do you see them operating behind the scenes? First of all, I think that it's fair to say that what they have been doing over the last uh, two weeks was pretty outspoken. They were actually uh, intervening publicly uh, in the media and Gaid Salah when he realized that Bouteflika was in a way uh, impossible to save. I mean, intervened in the media and made it clear that he was in favor of his uh, departure, of his resignation. So the army has played a very ambiguous role. I think that it's important to say that the army has not won. The army, or at least the high-ranking military officer, have not won the battle. They have lost and they are trying to minimize their defeat because they have been supporters of Bouteflika. Somebody like Gaid Salah, as an Asian activist recently said on a French radio program, was married with the Bouteflika family for 20 years. So Gaid Salah played this card until a certain moment and realized that since they were losing, he might as well minimize his loss. So the high-ranking officers in the army right now are playing a partition that is very defensive, Partition. They want the Algerian people to come back into some kind of constitutional path in order to limit the consequences of this revolution. This is a very reactionary strategy. At the same time, and it's also important to emphasize this second element, the army is historically legitimate to intervene politically in Algeria. They have a revolutionary history and they have a, a duty to protect both the nation and the people and the state. So the intervention of the army is at the same time, and this is kind of contradictory, legitimate in the sense that the army is an institution perceived as being above the political field of the political game that is in charge of protecting the whole nation and a very private institution controlled by a bunch of military officers, high-ranking officers, generals who are protecting their 
personal interests. These two aspects are uh, to be taken in consideration. We have seen how democratic institutions anywhere, including in this country, are vulnerable against entrenched interests and corrupt power elites. Uh, certainly this country is in the thick of a, a major, major situation. How strong or fragile are Algerian's institutions uh, right now? They've been wedded to the regime. How do they stand currently? Can they deliver a legitimate transition as they stand right now? That's a very good and difficult question. How strong are the institutions in Algeria? They are both weak and pretty strong. They are weak because they have been controlled by various social groups that were mainly interested in their own interests, in protecting their own position and benefiting from the status quo in various ways. So they have been appropriated and privatized. There is no, no question about that. Everybody knows in Algeria that the state has been privatized. So because of that, institutions are weak because they face what we call an institutional crisis, and their official objective and their hidden objective are in contradiction, they are opposite. And this creates a weakness, this creates a lack of legitimacy. At the same time, the state and the institutions are pretty strong because let's not overlook the fact that for the past six years, Algeria was basically without a president. They had a living dead man in El Moradilla and the country still stands. The government was able to manage daily affairs. So the government and the, and the institutions work. They work and they can manage a country. The question is, who is going to be in charge? And here you have, if you want, the most difficult aspect of the problem, the most tricky dimension of the Algerian configuration, is that those who are historically in charge of managing the state, that is to say the technocracy, are pillars of the regime. They are pillars of the regime. They have been pillars of all the different forms of the regime over the last 60 years. Technocrats are right now controlling the government. The Bedoui government is a government of technicians, of public servants, high-ranking public servants. Well, these people are at the same time completely, I would say, compromised, and yet they are essential, essential to uh, make sure that the state can function and that the transition that is going to happen uh, will happen in an orderly uh, manner, especially from the economic perspective, because there is obviously an economic uh, aspect in the, in the transition. So uh, this is why the situation, the current situation, is completely contradictory. The people in charge of delivering the transition are impossible to be trusted, and yet essential. So a little bit what happened in Tunisia as well, uh, before Algeria. 2011, they were not capable of removing the old clique and they're still having the same old problems they, they've had for a long time. But just to be clear, I think that history is pretty telling. This is not a process of denazification or debasification. Right. You can just like purge the states. And when you purge the states in Germany after World War II or in Iraq after the invasion of 2003, well, terrible things happen. So at one point, there is also a question of pragmatism. It is clear that the Algerian people want peaceful and radical change. And this should be delivered. That's not my, my responsibility or my role to say that it should be delivered or not. But this is a clear and legitimate claim. At the same time, for pragmatic reasons, parts of the ancient regime will be in charge of delivering the transition. And this is something that, unfortunately, is uh, difficult to avoid. 
Opposition parties in Algeria have been ineffectual in checking the power of the executive branch since 1988, and they seem to lack the standing to step in to ascertain the transition will be handled properly without undue influence of the current regime. They're viewed, these parties, as rightly or wrongly, they're viewed as part of the problem and not the solution. On the other hand, Algeria does not lack for credible historical and social leading figures that might be called upon to help steer the delicate uh, transition to a more transparent and accountable democratic mm -hmm. system. Are there, as we speak, attempts or negotiations to recruit some of these independent figures that have remained untainted and co-opted by the regime? Yes, uh, opponents of all kinds in political parties and in associations, activists, human rights activists, socioeconomic activists have been pretty active and ready to uh, come up with some kind of platform for a consensus. They have been actually uh, trying to do that for the last three, four, five years, five years at least, trying to come together and propose some kind of coherent platform for change, radical but peaceful change, a way out of the crisis. No, what they see is that there is an opening and there is a, a possibility for them to actually propose a change that would be meaningful and that could be a program that could be actually implemented. Now there's an opportunity for this, yes. Mm -hmm. There is an opportunity that is for the first time there and that they can touch and that they, that is also an emergency and there is a real demand. Some of them came together and proposed something very concrete. On March 19th, Platform for Change was published by a group of activists from various origins, backgrounds, some of them former Islamists, human rights activists, Berberists, socialists, and various trends of these like Berberist oppositions, some of them historically opposed to any kind of negotiation with the Islamists, some of them rather opposed to any kind of negotiation with the uh, eradicator, with hard uh, liners in the regime. So there is a genuine attempt right now from these various members of the opposition or uh, activists to come together and propose something, a way out. But, as always, the degree of fragmentation is such that it will take a lot of time to come up with something that makes sense with a concrete program and with, if you want, a, a direction that can be a genuine alternative to the bureaucrats who are now managing the transition. And I feel that three months won't be enough. Yes. So you mentioned something that's interesting. It was referring back to the terrible years of the civil war in the 1990s. And uh, you're saying some of these people and, and certain Berberist or so-called Berberist parties will not talk to one of the extremes, one extreme being the, the violent Islamists, and the other pole would be the hardliners within the regime who are eradicating the Islamists. Mm -hmm. So some of them are refusing to talk to the most violent factions. So that civil war is still very present in people's minds. It's still a major split in the body politic of Algeria. Well, actually, what is interesting with this platform released on March 19th is that among the people who signed it, you'll find Muraddinna, who is a former leader of the Islamic Salvation Front, and Belhabes, who is the current leader of the Rally for Culture and Democracy. Right. And Belhabes and Muraddinna are in a discussion, and they show signs that they are ready to overcome 
the divide, overcome the legacy of the civil war, and create a political discussion that is maybe agonist, but not purely antagonist, where the goal is not to destroy the enemy, and we can live and discuss in the same polity and share a common citizenship or a common sense of uh, belonging, while having very different ideas. And this is something new. And, and the fact that members of the, of the Islamic Salvation Front and former eradicators or former supporters of this strategy of the regime are now ready to speak in order to find a solution to the crisis. So in your assessment, three months will not suffice to bring about the transition that people are in Algeria demanding. Algeria is, would be hard-pressed to deconstruct and reconstruct in three months the 57 years of autocracy and then failed democracy. All of this takes time. And I feel that we, especially when we look a posteriori at the period of decolonization, we just underestimate what it takes to just change completely a system of domination. Transitioning from colonial rule to a free, independent, sovereign state takes a lot of time. For this free, independent, sovereign state to be actually democratic, it takes a lot of time. We tend to forget that for the French state to become a liberal representative regime, it took more than 80 years. It took more than 80 years. These transitions take a long time. On revolutions, they are not like magic moments. Yeah. The transition from Tsarist Russia to USSR didn't erase suddenly all the authoritarian structures characteristic of the Russian state. Soviet Russia is largely a continuation of the Tsarist state. Same authoritarianism, same form of violent policing. So my point is... All of this takes time. There is a political temporality. There are public discourses. There are also popular expectations. Everybody wants, in a way, a return to normal. They want their expectations or claims meet as, as soon as possible. But genuine transformation of the system of domination in Algeria will take a lot of time. And the, the reason to be optimistic is that activists in Algeria have been fighting for so long that I think that they have shown their resilience. They have shown that they can uh, keep fighting and deliver an actual transition, even if it takes much more than three months. Since 1962, Algeria, like most newly independent Arab countries in the region, those that were not uh, monarchies, mm -hmm. uh, they've been dominated and ruled by the military. This sounds like the best chance for Algeria to finally cut the umbilical cord and to try to arrive at a more representative democratic system. But following the terrible backlash from the Arab Spring in Syria, in Egypt, in Bahrain, chaos in Libya and Yemen, can the Algerian military, unlike militaries in those other countries, finally become a real, genuine, professional army strictly concerned with military affairs, like defending the physical integrity of the nation? Obviously, as long as the army will be in control of its own budget, and this is the case in Algeria right now, the budget of the army is not controlled by the government, well, the army will remain uh, largely autonomous and a political force, a political and economic force. So this is something that will be addressed during the period of transition. And I would not be surprised if it was like one of the main concerns of the military leaders right now, preserving their budget, preserving their interests. That makes sense. What we know for sure is that military leaders 
have no interest in a dramatization of the conflict. They have no interest in a militarization of the crisis. They have paid a huge price in terms of blood, but also in terms of credibility in the 90s. Military leaders in Algeria have no interest in following a path similar to Egypt or to Syria. So, God forbid. What, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It's not only a question of being optimistic, it's not wishful thinking. Gaïd Salah has been really putting Bouteflika under pressure. As the chief of has, staff of the military in Algeria, Gaïd Salah, yes. But the army could have intervened maybe two weeks ago. They have the, the means to end the crisis if they want to. They don't want to because it would be extremely costly. So the military, while being obviously attached to uh, the protection of their own interests and their budget, also know the limits. They also know the limits and they also know the price to pay. What we have seen and what we uh, hear when we uh, listen to, the, for example, the former Islamists is that members of the FIS, the Islamic Salvation Front, learn that there is a price to pay when you enter in a revolutionary struggle with a police state and you're ready to use weapons. They learn that. Well, I'm pretty sure that the army learned the same kind of lesson. So everybody knows what can happen if you militarize the conflict. Everybody knows that this is not the right path for Algeria right now, and this will limit in a way, the influence of the military. With the U.S. having finally completely, for the first time, really completely dropped the mask, the pretense of teaching the rest of the world about democracy, human rights, and all that, with Trump at the helm saying, hey, anything goes. Today's paramount momentum seems to be against liberal democracy worldwide. Do the Algerians have terrible timing, or can they be the exception to the rule right now. They wouldn't be the only country. I mean, there's Sudan that's, that's mm -hmm. struggling. There's Malaysia just uh, overturned a terrible dictator. Uruguay, many small countries are actually swimming against the tide, it looks like. It looks a bit like the tale of the two cities, this being the worst of times and the best of times at the same time. But I do worry about the general paradigm right now of power elites worldwide deciding, hey, there's no more real need to pretend that we're worried about uh, human rights. It's, not, it's no longer a requirement. Mm. Yeah, I have to say two things. First, I feel that if an Algerian uh, was listening to this show and, I mean, just heard you uh, using the word small country when speaking about Algeria, <laughs> they, they, would, they would completely freak out. Uh, this is a great, great uh, country full of history and glorious past. But be beyond that... Uh, <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. The largest country in Africa, for one thing. <laughs> yeah, and mm. that's important, I feel, for, mm. for, at least for Algerians. Well, this is a, a dark time, and at the same time, an historical period full of possibilities. Yes, it is true that the crisis of our liberal representative regimes led to... Uh, what we can see right now in uh, the US, what we can see in the UK, what we can see in France, because it's not glorious, what we can see in Central Europe or in Turkey, Russia. At the same time, weirdly, this discourse that was largely uh, hypocritical, uh, this discourse of democratization promoted by the US, the EU and other international actors, created some opportunities and the opportunities were real. The Algerians are right now using some of the spaces 
created by this discourse of democratization. So in a way, and I know that it's contradictory, but the flows of this process of democratization led to the uprisings in 2011 and to the uprising in Algeria right now. It's because the Algerian regime felt that they had to organize a phony election to legitimate Bouteflika that the Algerian people said, enough is enough. Your phony democracy, we don't want it. So what we see that people actually, at least in Algeria, they believe that this can work if it's done properly. And they know the difference between a fake phony representation and a genuine popular representation. They want real representatives. And if they don't have this kind of representatives, they can do it by themselves. So it shows that there is a discussion on representation that is going on and that politics are not just about our leaders. They are not just about Erdogan, uh, Putin or Trump. And you have grassroots movements in Turkey, in the US, in France and in Algeria that are on a daily basis challenging the authoritarian reorientation of our liberal representative regimes. And it shows that this tension is in a way a tension about the meaning of representation worldwide. And yes, it's a dark time, but it's also a time where people are actually fighting for a form of representation that is genuine. They are fighting for a form of representation that is not just electing some members of the elite once every five years or four years and just like accepting this state of affairs. So the Algerians are really, I feel, making a statement that goes far beyond Algeria. It's an example, and it's a way to rethink the meaning of representation as something that is more direct, something that is more democratic. And for sure, what our liberal regimes have been doing over the last 20, 30 years is not that. It's not that. So it's a, it's a real alternative, and a credible one. Yes, this pro-democracy movement in Algeria is always compared with those that preceded it in other Arab countries, which certainly is relevant and interesting. But uh, hardly anyone mentions, at least in this country, um, the Yellow Vest movement as an interesting coincidence, which mm -hmm. is happening at the same time in France and started even before the Algerian movement. Not to equate the two or to exaggerate the connections between the two, but Algerians are definitely very much attuned to what happens in France, not just the Arab neighbors. Any thoughts about the parallel and coincidence of these two movements in, in Algeria and France? That's, that's extremely interesting to think of. I, I feel that if there is a parallel, it's in the nature of the state. The state in France has been increasingly authoritarian, and it's no ruled by a technocracy that has a very pejorative uh, opinion of its own people. And somebody like Emmanuel Macron uh, has said repeatedly things that are extremely violent about the, the, the French people. And when I hear Macron, sometimes I think, well, this could be Selal, or this could be Uyahia. This could be one of these former prime ministers in Algeria who have been ousted by the crowd. So there is, there is a parallel. This contempt, there is this violence of the bureaucracy, of the technocracy, there is this economic restructuring, there is a police state that draws on a state of exception that is never ending in the name of the war on terror. In both cases, in both cases, the main difference, if you think about it, is in the movement itself, is in the difference between the Gilets Jaunes and what the Algerians have done. I'm not 
against the gilets jaunes per se, the yellow vest, are not against their, their, their claims or their revendications. But the main difference is that the Algerian Algerian protesters were able to defeat their police state by drawing on a form of self-organized non-violence, a form of self-discipline that is absolutely remarkable and almost unique. And you can see with the yellow vest in France that French people who are usually presented as people that is used to protesting, they don't have the same discipline, they don't have the same understanding of the stakes, they don't have the same understanding of the nature of their own state. And this is the main difference. Algerians, I feel, were completely aware of the real nature of their state. And understanding this knowledge is what allowed them to defeat the police state and what gave them these preliminary victories in this revolutionary process. That was a good comparison and contrast, but do you feel there's any symbiotic relationship between the two, that they're kind of watching each other and, and sort of encouraging one another subconsciously? Subconsciously, I don't know. I don't think that there is any kind of symbiotic relationship. There is clearly some kind of common temporality, but the forms, the practices are extremely different. I think that the, the main commonality is clearly the state, the structure of the state, the discourse of the state. And the expectations, the popular expectations, when it comes to what the state should do in terms of redistributing wealth, for example. But when it comes to the actual movement, I feel that what is happening right now in Algeria is truly exceptional. Algerian protesters know very well how global politics work. Mm. So their performance is not only about Algeria. It's also a performance for the world. So from this perspective, they speak to uh, a French audience and a global audience. So this movement is clearly uh, inserted in a global environment, especially in the media. Then in terms of circulation, there are forms of solidarity between Sudan and Algeria, between Morocco and Algeria, and also obviously between France and Algeria. That makes sense. Algeria is globalized. There is a huge diaspora. So there are connections, there are forms of solidarity. And there's also a huge contingent of Algerians in France. That creates a link. I know that many uh, Franco-Algerians or binationals living in Europe went back to Algeria because for them it's, it's a moment to express a very important part of their identity and to be proud of this half or maybe more, maybe less, I don't know, uh, part of what they are politically. And this creates obviously a form of I don't know if it's a symbiosis, but very strong relationship between the south of the Mediterranean and the north. So uh, my last question for you is, much has been made of the peaceful reappropriation of public space over the last few weeks in Algeria, something that was observed also in Seattle in 1999 and Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Oakland in 2011 and any number of movements since peaceful uh, movements, these movements have the advantage of being headless and therefore mm -hmm. difficult to decapitate. But they also have at the same time a hard time putting forward a cohesive strategy or political agenda. You've kind of briefly addressed this today. Tell us a little bit how you see this working itself out as we speak in Algeria. It's difficult to predict the future. It's impossible to predict the future. What I see right now, what I feel is that 
at one point, uh, it's up to the ruling elites and the aspiring ruling elites to meet the expectations, to, to be uh, able to represent their people the way it should be. And clearly, the bar is pretty high. And if there is one thing that will, I think, inspire the, the political actors to come up with a responsible solution, it's the way in which the population has been mobilized for the last seven weeks. I've been talking with some activists, and what is pretty clear is that there is a sense of duty. They have to deliver because the people have done something so amazing that there is a sense of responsibility of duty. They have to do it. So I believe that at least among the circles of responsible activists, political opponents, uh, human rights uh, activists especially, something will come up, something that makes sense. And I would not be surprised if it's organized around the figure of uh, Mustafa Bouchashi, the former head of the, the Algerian League for the Defense of Human Rights, who is one of these responsible, relatively charismatic figures that people can trust. And this is, I feel, a, a way out of the crisis and the potential path toward a meaningful representative system. So you see the current regime uh, being peacefully forced into accepting some of these social society elements into the transition process. Well, they, they, they don't really have the choice at this point. They have, they have been defeated twice over the last three times over the last seven uh, weeks. First, they had to accept mass protests. Then they had to accept to uh, delay and then cancel the election. Then they had to abandon Bouteflika. It's three defeats in a row. When you start a war and you, you lose three battles, you will have to make concessions. You will have to make concessions. So they are going to, to make concessions. And among these concessions, I mean, integrating members of the so-called civil society, or I would say uh, non-discredited political figures, is a necessity. And they will not find civilian figures in the ruling FLN or R&D, the historical ruling parties, because these parties are completely discredited. So they will have to find these figures somewhere else. And a good thing for Algeria is that these people exist. Yes, the political field and political parties were largely discredited, but some politicians were decent people with an expertise, with an ability to propose coherent ideas and coherent discourses. And yes, these people exist. And I think that the regime has the duty and is in a position where they don't have the choice. They will have to integrate some of them in the government, in the power structure. And again, I would not be surprised if uh, Mostafa Bouchashi and other figures of this human rights activism are uh, part of the, the solution. Because they have not been tainted, they have not been co-opted by the regime at any point. Yeah, yeah and they are also always advocated for peace especially in the 90s. The thing with the human rights activists like Bouchashi that you cannot say this guy was a terrorist or this guy was an eradicator. He is clearly somebody who has always been in favor of democracy and peace in Algeria. So how can you discredit this kind of person? It would be difficult. This is probably where the solution is. And this is also a trajectory that we have seen in Tunisia. Monsef Marzouki was also a former human rights activist, the first president of Tunisia after the revolution. And at the same time, it seems that more and more grassroots pressure on the media is also affecting positive change there with, mm. with a better chance for transparency. Yeah, absolutely. No, but at this point, 
since everything that has happened over the last seven weeks was positive, I know that we need to be cautious. We need to be skeptical. But I feel that wishful thinking and optimism is the best way to give a chance to the Asian people to actually realize genuine, complete and ambitious revolution. Dr. Thomas Serre is a lecturer in the Political and Legal Studies Department at the University of California in Santa Cruz. He is a specialist in North African and Mediterranean politics. For more news and analysis about Algeria, please visit jadmagazine.com. We'll continue after a short break. You can listen to extended version of this interview on our SoundCloud and our iTunes page at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And there, you can also subscribe to our podcast. It's been eight years since the Syrian people revolted against Bashar al-Assad's regime. During these years, Syrian art has flourished inside and in the diaspora, documenting loss, exile, resistance, and resilience. Next, Vomina's Mira Nabulsi speaks with Syrian artist Dima Neshawi. She's an illustrator and the founder of the Memory Initiative for Syrian Culture. Her illustrations portray her personal experiences as well as stories from the Syrian collective memory. Through her art, Dima interacts with human rights issues globally, focusing on advocacy for prisoners of conscience and the forced disappeared. I left Syria in 2013 out of despair, but not out of major reason as like I'm not targeted or my house is destroyed, but because I felt that uh, I just need to move and try to find some useful thing to do somewhere else. So I moved to Beirut. So many of your illustrations have this theme of Syria and the revolution. Eight years after the Syrian people revolted against Bashar al-Assad regime, what's left of the revolution in your view? I think at a certain point, I might be a dreamer, but yes, we have to keep dreaming. I think like the revolution on 2011 planted seeds, and these seeds will take years until they grow up. I believe that what happened, combining the mistakes and the right things that happened from 2011 and onwards, the next generation will, will make use of this experience. And I'm hoping that they will continue our way and continue to change 
maybe like it is a lesson learned to know that peaceful change is more yeah more effective if i if i would say it's it is something that it is a very long way but it is the result is more guaranteed than armed revolution and i think this was a lesson learned i hope that we take it and learn from it mm-hmm. and the next generation will know how to proceed and how do you express that in your art there's uh, a lot of frustration i try to highlight the issue of for example there's one of them called the civil society there is a woman who's holding a rifle and she's trying to prevent the bullets from coming out and a lot of other hands trying to hold the rifle and take it to use it so i show in the illustration how uh, a woman because i'm representing myself and I, how i feel and because i think at a certain point like life is a woman and land is a woman and she's trying to to stop the war elements you have this new project also the secret of the raindrops it's a short animation film and you've written the story as well as done the illustrations and this is i know one of your interests is to talk about arbitrary detention against civil society activists by different actors in the syrian conflict and the struggle to release those uh, prisoners of conscience. Do you want to talk a little bit about this film? Okay, I'm going to tell you the story of this film. Mm-hmm. So basically, when I got my scholarship in 2015, I think like one month before traveling to London, my friend was detained. She was a peaceful activist, and basically she was detained because of her activities in helping children to get education in the opposition area by the government mm-hmm. and the story of uh, the secret of raindrops i started it before that uh, with her chat on chat i was trying to you know entertain her and tell her a story so i made up this on spot story about a girl who her name is lana and yeah i created like some parts of the story mm-hmm. and then when lana was detained my friend's name is lana i wanted to do something for her so i gathered this part of the story and we write them with the help of a friend because i'm not a writer mm-hmm. but he helped me to reconstruct the story and i created the story and then i illustrated the story and and then i made this book this story is basically a very symbolic talks about a girl who's trying to know the whereabouts of her mother who disappears in woods and instead a raindrop remained tangled on a tree branch with the mother's name written inside it and basically a deer comes at this moment and take the teardrop to take it to the witch who gathers those raindrops for an unknown reason so lana tries to know what's the secret of this raindrops and how she could find her mother and she make her trip to the witch to know how she can release her mother so um, it's fiction and it represents prisoners of conscience and their struggle when they've been detained because of their opinion and their whereabouts is totally unknown mm-hmm. that's a huge number in syria we're talking thousands of, of people of course it's it's a huge number and unfortunately i don't know the exact number but a lot of them face death 
because of either like unhealthy situation or because of torture. And I think it is a shame that this is still happening in this world. And I don't think it is something that is only related to Syria, because I know a lot of other countries that Mm -hmm. still have the same approach to a position. And I was hoping that in this story, and I made a short animation from it, I was hoping to try to advocate for this case, not only for Syria, but also for any any country that has the same issue. Mm-hmm. And the film was nominated for an award. It was selected by the Bangalore Film Festival in India. Mm-hmm. And today I got also like uh, an email saying that it was selected by Short India Film Festival. Are you going to put the entire film on YouTube? Or for now, I, I saw the trailer. Yes, I will. But I'm waiting only for another month just to get answers from uh, festivals. But mm-hmm. afterwards, for sure, I'm going to put it online. And for anyone who follows Arab arts uh, of different genres, you could see that there's this perhaps explosion of Syrian art since the revolution of the people in 2011. Of course, Syria had always had this rich cultural scene, but we're also seeing a sort of a flourishing of visual arts, indie music and film, uh, etc. And a challenging of social norms and the politics in Syria. How can you explain this phenomenon? Well, it is part of the research I told you about also that I'm doing right now. It is about the Syrian cultural memory and its relation with arts. Basically, before 2011, the art was restricted to the ideology, the Ba'ath ideology and the ideology of the government. So basically, it was very limited. I think it was like very limited. For example, we used to have very good drama, but I think the drama was used to make the people, you know, release their tension of the oppression they used to suffer from. Mm -hmm. And it is a technique to make them uh, absorb the oppression and not try not to object it. But in terms of like visual arts, um, no, I don't think it was rich at all because I was working in uh, Syria as an animator and we were like super struggling to find, you know, platforms to create art that is not commercial, that it is not ideologic, that is not religious. It always like fall under certain limitation. But after the 2011, first of all, we, we had the chance to express our opinions for the first time of, in our life. We wanted to tell messages and we wanted to advocate for what is going on in Syria. Some of the artists, of course, they were targeted because of that. And for those who traveled away, they had a chance to express more and develop their art and and basically it is also something very important for our identity especially if you are in the exile not in an arabic country in beirut it's very similar to damascus but when i was in london i felt the urgency to tell about myself as a syrian i felt there are a lot of stereotypes about syrians and i want to challenge stereotypes I felt the urgency of drawing and it was my relief Mm. to do so. And I believe that many of other artists did the same. And of course, they had the chance to exchange their experience with the others and that will expand their knowledge and expand their skills. 
Do you think this type of art can empower people in this time, in this very difficult time where Syrian people are facing a lot of trauma and being scattered, the dispossession of the people? I would hope so, that my, my art will have this impact. I think it will inspire them. Sometimes it will give them a kind of relief. For example, like I worked with a campaign called al Ghuta. It is an uh, area in the suburbs of Damascus, and it was taken by the regime, I think it was last year. But the thing is, the civilians were stuck between, you know, the fight, and a lot of them were trying to campaign about stopping, protecting the civilians, protecting the children. And this campaign called Al-Ghuta, it's available online. They were trying to say that those people who are stuck in this area, they are human beings, they love, they miss, and they want to live. Basically, I did illustration for several topics. One of them is called Love Is, and it was about love stories in the besieged area. The second topic about displacement. And I remember that one of the stories is about a mother who left behind the grave of her daughter because she was forced, evicted from Ruta, and she was missing that she can't go and visit her daughter's grave. And when I was drawing this illustration, I was like trying my best to show these people in a, in a beautiful image because they deserve that show her daughter in a beautiful in a beautiful way and I, I i read her comment and she was so, so happy as if she's seeing her daughter again she was so happy with the illustration and also she was grieving because she can't see her grave again so i think it's kind of not that i will give them the relief but i will kind of show them support and solidarity and maybe at a certain point, someone will be inspired of uh, the illustration and whether she is a woman or whether a man and believe that maybe they will do something in this day when they see the illustration. Yes, I'm going to do something today. I hope that I will do that. Mm-hmm. I hope that my aunt will do that. And it looks like one common theme that we can see in your work is your attempt to have an artistic and creative representation of Syrian life, especially with the current realities that you were just describing. In fact, your MA work, if I'm not mistaken, centered around the whole idea of reclaiming the Syrian narrative. Uh, You do that also through the project, the Creative Memory Archive of the Syrian Revolution. Do you want to say something about that? was one of the archives that I was researching within this research. So basically, it is about the cultural memory and it is about the usage of art to preserve the stories of people. In my master's thesis project, it was about if we collected the stories of ordinary people who contributed in uh, helping their community and doing activities to support the surroundings during the revolution and the war and transform these stories into visual narratives. Is this going to help us as Syrians to reclaim our agency and change our speech and also contribute in the reconstructing of the cultural memory? And the main motive of this research is basically I can't remember the main quote, but it is like if you you know plan for the cultural memory, you're shaping the future mm-hmm. because the next generation will check this stories, check 
the art that happened during this period and they will be inspired and motivated by it but if they see that the Syrian history or the Syrian memory is all about death and victimization and crisis I don't know how they would be motivated as much as if they see that a lot of Syrians were trying to do something and change and spread messages and I created a story while I was in the in the university it's called country uh, that lost its song and this is on my Facebook it's uh, just missing one the last illustration the ending <laughs> and it talks about like the, so it's like I, a series it is instead of like publishing the story I publish it each illustration with, by putting the text related next to it mm. so I was introducing the, the followers of my page to the stories uh, time by time I didn't post all of it uh, at the same time and I still have the ending that I didn't post yet and it is about the peaceful activism and the peaceful revolution I and I symbolize it with the song and it is based on memory it is based on how I was perceiving the revolution and how I had high hopes mm to peacefully change the situation in Syria. And then I am doing now the second part, which is if we're going to do this approach of collecting the story, how we guarantee that it's going to happen in an inclusive way. So basically I'm researching some of memory initiatives that emerged from 2011 till now and seeing how they worked and assessing their approaches and if they tried to reach for all Syrians or part of them and and how they used art and all this thing. I'm still in its initial stage, but... Yeah, and that's very important what you're talking about because it seems to me, especially when you're living maybe in the West and are not part of these contexts that you're describing, what we see, what we tend to see mostly in media, media coverage of a situation like currently Syria, is just images of death and destruction. It becomes a very victimizing image of the people themselves. So having those type of projects like the ones you're doing and art and creative expression is a great way to show the richness of a culture, to show the depth also of people's lives that obviously are very difficult lives, but at the same time, there's more to them than just the image of the victim. Exactly. And this is the thing that the life of the people never ended because of the war. It is not a flourishing, of course, but I lived at least three years in Damascus while the revolution and it was like a very intensive time. I believe that we didn't lose the will to live. Uh, so many people I knew in the besieged area, they worked every day and they worked in initiatives that try to cover the gaps of education, cover the gaps of the child protection situation in Syria, which was not available at all before 2011. And after that, a whole network was created for child protection policies. And there's a lot of things that happened in Syria after 2011. Until now, although the people are the general situation in Syria is a despair because People is, are living in a very hardship because basic services is not available in Damascus. Uh, Idlib is now being shelled and we are expecting another uh, scenario of eviction. 
Mm. I don't know where. There's nowhere they can go to. But still, I believe that people will remain to work. And there is incredible stories of survival and humanity. And we just need to collect the stories and just transfer them to the world. And it makes me also think a little bit about international response and how the work you're doing and other thinkers and artists are doing that are important to kind of shape as well the international response, the international aid that happens, whether it's in Syria or in places where Syrians live, whether it's refugee camps or communities, just upholding the dignity of people, empowering people to find solutions for their own problems, as opposed to imposing and treating people as victims. I think the work you do definitely pushes us to think beyond just this dichotomy of donor or savior and recipient to a more empowering relationship of people who face conflict and disasters. Yeah, regarding this point, Mira, I want to say something very important. We need to change the relationship with, let me use the right term, the international NGOs. And this is something that I was discussing, for example, with my scholarship team and basically I was telling them that we need to change this relationship what is going on is basically big conferences are still happening now in in Beirut for example where a lot of international and expats are invited and like a very few Syrians I don't know in which criteria they were selected and all of a sudden all these people want to talk about peace in Syria how come where is the Syrian that they need to discuss this it's not about the international community it's about Syrians themselves Mm -hmm. to be presented and uh, speak for themselves Dima Neshawi is a Syrian artist illustrator and the founder of the memory initiative for Syrian culture she spoke with Mira Nabolsi from her home in Beirut Lebanon You can listen to extended version of this interview on our SoundCloud and our iTunes page at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And there you can also subscribe to our podcast. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.